1: This is Increment
2: Vice,
1: the podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time with your host, Travis Woods. What did it matter where you lay once you were dead? In a dirty sump or in a marble tower on top of a high hill? You were dead. You were sleeping the big sleep. You were not bothered by things like that. Oil and water were the same as wind and air to you. You just slept the big sleep, not caring about the nastiness of how you died or where you fell. Me? I was part of the nastiness now. That's a line from Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, and it's one that Doc is surely on a handshake basis with, or would at least nod kind of knowingly to before returning to his cloud of Asian indica. When you're dead, you're dead, as Bigfoot Bjornsson says. But what if? What if even that was one of the certainties that the Golden Fang could take from us? Who could you turn to? Who else could Doc take this to besides our old flat top pal? As Chandler wrote in The Long Goodbye, I never saw any of them again, except the cops. No way has yet been invented to say goodbye to them.
3: I can only think I like Inherent Vice, since the more I try to wrap my head around it, the more it slips away. Like many of writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, especially his last three, It's ironic that the clearest word to sum them up is opaque his films feel burnt at the edges like catching a glimpse of a person just as they turn the corner but you can't make out enough detail so you follow to get another look and another until all is clear the more you're willing to follow Anderson down a pot smoke rabbit hole the more rewarding inherent vice will be multiple viewings may be required it helps that it's all so, so funny, with an absurdist comic tone that lends more laughs than you'd expect. Scratch that. This is a comedy, albeit an epic one, infused with the grandeur of an era that's actually more a state of mind than a history lesson. It's a kaleidoscope that's quasi-political, pseudo-spiritual, and treats cannabis consumption like a religious order. How else could you provide the groove-out vibey vibes? Such were the attitudes of 1970s California, or so the film vividly depicts, making Inherent Vice not just a place or a time, but a feeling. That is today's guest in his contemporary review of Inherent Vice, a regular voice here at One Heat Minute Productions, and a deeply insightful writer with bylines at RogerEbert.com, Vague Visages, and The Metaplex. A writer whose insights into film enlighten me as much as they inflame my insane jealousy for having not thought of them first. Brendan Hodges, thanks for coming on Increment Vice.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me, and my goodness, I don't think I can ever live up to that intro. Thank you, sir. That's okay. No one does.
3: <laughs> such such is the force of my hyperbole and the strength of it all right you're here we're gonna do you're gonna do your best you're gonna do your best to live up to that no I'll pressure. Do my best so there's a lot of there's a lot of people well let's scratch that there were not a lot of people that saw in hair of Ice when it came out but those who did there was a pretty vast array of opinions and reactions to the film and then a whole variety of types of dislike for the film and a whole variety of types of appreciation for the film uh of the kinds of people who watched it and enjoyed it you seem to be one of those people who were like i like it but i'm not clear on why i like it so i better see it i better see it again a lot to to see if i can figure out why i like it was that you
0: that's a pretty good summation of things but i'll add to that that particularly in a film review, I don't think it's the responsibility of a critic, particularly at first glance, to kind of evaluate the overall merit of a movie. I know that sounds weird, but what I really mean is when I'm trying to write a film review, which I haven't really written consistent reviews for a few years, I've been doing mostly essays and guesting on one heat minute podcast, to (laughs) my great pleasure. Um, It was really to recount my subjective experience watching that movie and to relay that in words and in this case i had a kind of magical transformative experience with inherent vice and the origin of that i felt like it wasn't my responsibility to try to figure out exactly but i did think it was very interesting to see it in the context of his other work and uh the master in particular is my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. It's probably in my top 15 favorite movies ever. I'm a huge PTA fan, this is a PTA household. My girlfriend's favorite filmmaker is PTA. Um, There's a constant uh, uh, question of when are we gonna have PTA Fest next? Because we typically go through filmographies more than one-offs. And I say all this because uh, I, I felt inherent advice back in winter 2014 felt like an extension of the late period or current period PTA that we've kind of gotten accustomed to between There Will Be Blood and The Master, where his filmmaking has gotten increasingly simple and understated stylistically compared to say Boogie Nights with the roaming camera and everything. And yet he's playing with bolder, crazier tones in some ways. And I found all of that in combination totally delightful. And intoxicating, um, and I desperately wanted to see it again. And I've seen it many, many, many times since. And I, I don't—I honestly don't know if I'm that much closer to really explaining everything the movie is doing, particularly because I've never read the book, although I have read a uh, *Crying Lot* by Pynchon. So it, that was kind of my first experience. And I'll end this by saying I don't think I've ever wanted to eat pizza more. Than when I finished my first screening of Inherent Vice.
3: Yeah, it's a pizza movie, isn't it? You you do. It is, especially when you watch that Topang the, the the Topanga Canyon Party House scene and
2: mm-hmm. the, the Last
3: Supper of of just pizza. Right
2: it's a on.
3: pizza. Well, pizza's like a pot food. You know, you you get you get high, you get hungry. Pizza's like a go-to. No. Yeah. For sure. Now that now that said, you know when you were saying watching the film and maybe not any more clear on why you like it. I think that's part of the weird lunar pull of this, of this movie and how it can grab you. If, if you're in tune with its weird wavelengths, not to sound like a character from the film, but it's, um it's that thing of you, you see it the first time and you like it, but you're not sure why you like it, or maybe even love it. And you're not sure why. So you tell yourself, I'm going to see it again. And then I'm going to see it again and I'm going to figure out why I like it. And each time you see it, you never do figure out why you love it. The reasons for loving it never seem to grow any clearer. But each time you go back looking, it's your love of the movie or your like of the movie that seems to grow and grow and grow with each viewing. Or at least that's been the case with me. But the understanding of why you love it and have to come back still remains Hazy, and it's something that prior guest Kim Morgan and I have talked about a couple of times. We feel like we should be sharp enough to understand why we love this movie, and yet here I am hosting a 50 episode podcast, you know, (laughs) pestering people to talk to me about this movie because I'm still trying to solve why I love it. And I don't want to solve the movie because I find the plot itself not not all that confusing or, or necessitating to being solved. And because I don't really want to decode its magic, but I just want to understand and solve why this film means everything to me. And I never, I never really feel like I'm that much closer. I just know that I love it a little more each time.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. And I also will say that I think PTA in general, and this isn't a rule for all of his movies, but many of them, I think at first blush with them for a lot of people, they feel a little cold and distant. And on repeat viewings, their warmth and humanity and empathy and love blossoms for you. And I think the bigger the PTA person you are and the more literate you are in his filmography, the more open you're going to be from the first viewing for that warmth and love and humanity. And I think that part of what connects with people about this movie for the people who love it or the people who loved it right away is just the sense of uh, affection he has for all of the main characters doc in particular and you can sense that he really truly wants to wrap his characters in a kind of blanket no matter what they're experiencing um this is a weird point of comparison but uh it reminds me a little bit of Greta Gerwig's uh Uh, movies that she's directed, Lady Bird and Little Women, because part of those movies are so um, enjoyable and breezy just because she clearly loves these characters so, so much and she feels so much for them and she allows them to fail and be ugly and she allows them to make mistakes. But she doesn't really do that in a judgy way. And I feel like that has come to define a lot of what PTA's filmography has done, even from back in Hard Eight, where he just lets these people be messy and ugly, but he by the end of the movie, you get the sense that he wants to give them a hug, and he wants you to want to give them a hug, too. Yeah. And in in Inherent Vice, it's very much the same way.
3: And not only that, but and I'd never thought of this until this moment, but when you compare Anderson to Gerwig, I think that another similarity, at least in terms of this film and her work, is they're all Hangout films. It's just... Absolutely. Loving the characters so much that the plot, it's just a reason to get us to hang, to, to be in the room with these characters and watch them do what they do. But that's entirely secondary to just being able to live with these people for two hours, two and a half hours, and just hang with them and fall in love with them the way their creators, or in the case of Little Women in this film, their adapters have fallen. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and, for sure.
3: And something else you mentioned uh, about how Anderson's formal style has become simplified instead of, instead of becoming more complex as he gets older, it's become far more simple. As you said, while the, you know, the emotions and the things that that style contains and the things, the point, the is pointed at have become more complex. Uh, Jason Bailey, a previous guest had a good line that, you know, the first half of PTA's career is Coke kid. And the second half is weed dad. And, <laughs> And I think the thing, that, and I think that you really struck on something there, though. What's interesting about Weed Dad PTA is, and I think it's, you see it in this film more than any other of his Weed Dad phase, although the master is pretty, pretty rife with it as well. It's that each of the component parts of Inherent Vice, they're all fairly digestible and understandable. The comedic performances are funny. The sad performances are melancholic. The Shasta plot makes sense. The Koi plot makes sense. The Bigfoot plot makes sense. It's just that all of these component elements to the story, the feelings, the plot, the characters, the world, they simply aren't welded together and unified together in the way that most films are. They are unified, but just never... I think quite in the way we are used to seeing them in film. And the story is not told, I think in the average act one, act two, act three way that we, we, we digest stories. And there's a great line from your review where you wrote, if doc has a spirit animal, it's an ancient map where all the details are fading. And the map key has water spilled on it. Characters coast from a to D even if it might mean skipping B. And Inherent Vice doesn't mind skipping B, C, half of D, and at some point skipping ahead to K, all before taking a breather to backpedal back to J. That's about as apt a plot breakdown
2: <laughs> as I've
3: read in Inherent Vice. But that is how it's structured, and I think that is one of the things that keeps it, that, that arrangement of co- of component parts, having it be so diffusely unified or strangely unified or not in the right order there's something about the film that just keeps you from digesting it right off the bat and i think that loses some people
0: yeah and i think that there is and this is something i've talked with our friend blake about a lot on a bunch of the different movies whether it's heat mohicans or whatever i think that there is a over reliance on plot in general in the minds of a lot of folks out there. And I uh, think that plot people, uh, you know, chill out. Um, You know, (laughs) I I think that the best movies that have really great plots, um, whether it's Heat, which has a very dramaturgically precise, literate plot arc, um, they become another mood or they become another texture. And this is something that has been on my mind a lot lately because I've been going through some of the old one-car uh, Y movies that I had never seen. So I, I, I watched Chunking Express for the first time this week. I watched Fallen Angels for the first time this week. And um, I know I... I was, about one-car Y last week. Yeah, that is exactly why. Um, and because the thing is, is... Uh, I'm trying to use quarantine in the best possible way that I can to fill in some of the gaps in what I've seen. And i would seen In the Mood for Love a bunch of times, but I just for some reason never distanced back. And Criterion is a great excuse to do that. But I say that because those movies have very elliptical narratives. And one moment drips into the next and then kind of goes back. And then when I re- uh, revisited Inherent Vice, I thought, what a great idea would it be to do a double feature with The Big Sleep? the film noir film, and it might be my favorite film noir. And it's interesting that these four movies, two of which seem completely like the others, all have this idea in common of turning the plot into this kind of abstract impressionistic device, where the closer you get to understanding or comprehending some kind of narrative, the more it kind of drifts away and slips away from you, and yet you somehow wind up closer to the characters you somehow wind up closer to the emotional center of the movie. So it's like the plot, such as it is lures you in to this kind of emotional space without you really realizing that's what it's doing. And I think that's especially the case in inherent vice where, uh, I mean, speaking of the plot mechanic, the opening scene with Shasta, it creates this plot line where, you know, you're supposed to be investigating um, all these different figures and, uh, the wolfen character and everything and yet the actual plot arc of the movie that comes to matter doesn't begin until 30 minutes in when uh i mean it might even be 40 minutes in, where he's where the actual plot starts of where he's supposed to be looking for owen wilson's character and all exactly. of that kind of it's thing
3: literally 45 minutes deep into the film
2: before there you go
3: the actual plot the the, the backbones the film it doesn't kick in until like a hard 45
0: exactly and the plot that began in the opening scene ends something like 90 minutes in and (laughs) you know where everything is resolved and what i think is so interesting about that is like what i was saying it brings you further into the movie the opening plot that's resolved prematurely why is it there it's to bring you in it's to bring you into this state of uh, zen in a weird way at the heart of this whirlwind of plot that always seems a little bit elusive and i'm sure many people can easily tell you the exact plot of the movie people could do that with the crying lot of 49 they have i've read uh, very uh, persuasive uh, descriptions of what the plot is but obviously if it's the type of plot where you need a dry erase board to figure it out you're not necessarily designed or supposed to go and figure it out right away. Obviously it's a device for something else. And so I think these uh, four movies are just very persuasive examples of how you should maybe reorient how to treat plot in general and how plot can be used differently than as an end to itself. And I love that about this because inherent vice is a very literary movie not just because it's an adaptation but because the visuals and dialogue are coded with rich meaning and symbols and uh coded language but it's also a very cinematic movie and you would think that the plot would have to center all of it but it actually matters less and less and less as the movie goes on because anything even remotely close to a plot ends 20 minutes before the end credits (laughs) So why are you still watching the movie if if it's so plot-motivated? Obviously, it goes much, much deeper than that. Sure.
3: Well, there was a previous guest, uh, Fran Hoffner. She was in episode four, and I had her on specifically because I wanted someone to represent the contention to people who don't like Inherent Vice. Because they're real. They're out there, Brendan. They're out there in the wild. And, you know, one of the things she did mention was she's like, okay, wait. I, I start this movie. And there's the big sleep type opening and Shasta shows up and says, hey, Mickey Wolfman, my uh, uh, my my boyfriend is going to get he, there's going to be a booby house snatch. And his wife is going to try and steal her money. And I don't know where he's at. I need your help. And she's like, well, wait, wait, wait. When they find Mickey and he's fine. And she's like, I look at the clock and there's still 45 minutes left to this movie. She's like, I clock I couldn't do. She's like, I finished it. But I was she was so angry because She's like, well, why did I care? Why did I care about this if this wasn't even the plot? And I think you're right that you have to view it as, you know, it's it's our reason for for coming into the room, for coming into the movie. But on top of that, I wouldn't go so far as to say the plot is pointless uh, beyond being our, our portal into this world. I think every part of the plot is shot through with what really matters in this film, which is the themes and the thematic heft of the film and the idea of time being this avatar of inherent vice, that it's this this thing that you can't insure against that's going to change things. The the unchanging its unchanging nature is that it will always change something and take something from us. And I think that you see that in any of the disparate plot threads that you want to grab onto, regardless of where they begin or where they end, whether it's the Wolfman case that begins the film and then stops, you know, with a good third of the movie left. Whether it's the Coy Harlingen film or the Koy Harlingen plot that doesn't begin until nearly halfway and then carries through all the way to the ending. All of these things matter. And the way they slowly, gradually begin to interlace and form this this lattice of like thematic connectivity. It all matters. It's just it's told to us. And I'm going to say this in the most – I mean this as a compliment, even though it's going to sound like a dig. Have you ever had someone who's really, really bad at telling jokes try to tell you a joke? And it's like, okay, so this guy and a girl, they walk into the bar, and the guy said, oh, wait, 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 stop. So this bar, by the way, it's in Cleveland. You need to know that. You need to know it's in Cleveland. Okay, so this bar in Cleveland, this guy – oh, and there's – okay, so the guy owns an alligator farm. That's something else you got to know. Inherent Vice is kind of (laughs) like that. Whether it's yes. on purpose to represent Doc's addled state of mind, or sort of Leesha's st- addled state of mind, or perhaps Star is Doc—that's a whole other thing. Right. But the film is told to us like someone who doesn't know how to tell a joke, and you have to keep stopping to introduce new elements before you can ever kick off the actual plot line of the joke that'll lead to uh, uh, the funny part, the punchline. And yeah, that's inherent advice, because if you if you if you study the structure of this thing... So, like, last week, Blake and I made this big deal about having finally cleared the first hour of Inherent Vice. And we noted how the the car scene with Jade was, like, the delineation between hour one and hour two of this two-and-a-half-hour film. Now, I'm sure it's not intentional and is probably wholly arbitrary to point out, but, hey, this is an increment vice. Uh, if not uh, now, when? Yeah. A, <laughs> this is a, this, and this is a film... In which the most seemingly arbitrary item or clue uh, can be a possible skeleton key that unlocks a whole world. But there is an interesting bit of structure in that the entire first hour of Inherent Vice is all that. It's all stumbling setups and introductions. It's its constantly, okay, here's Shasta, and here's Doc, and here's this guy, Mickey Wolfman. Okay, okay, wait, stop. This other thing you need to know is that he's disappeared. Okay, okay, then we'll wait. This other thing you need to know is there's this Channel View Estates that's taken away this uh, 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 gang member's neighborhood. And he's, okay. by the way, he just got out of prison. And this other guy owes him money, who's also a Nazi. Oh, and those Nazis are hanging out with the guy who's missing. The first hour is just constantly, stop, wait, 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 one more thing. You gotta know this. You gotta know this for this to make sense. And each scene is basically designed in the first hour to introduce something new, a character, a plot point, even a boat. And the hour that follows, the hour that we're beginning today with this scene, is all about the interweaving. Taking all of those individually introduced disparate elements and linking them together. And that starts here, as I said, in your scene, by linking Koi Harlingen to seemingly this totally unrelated element, Bigfoot Bjornson, with Doc right. being this thread that stitches them together. And I, I to go back to not to, to make it our sole point of this episode, but to go back to another thing that I think some people felt was so confounding is that for an hour straight, for an hour straight, this movie is nothing but an increasing accretion of elements without explanation as to why they are in the film, why are we are learning about them. And then the second hour is just this dizzying avalanche of sequences in which they all connect up. In this web of memory and pot smoke and coincidence and detective work, and they form this picture that's at once really shockingly intimate for what we all thought was going to be a stoner comedy, but almost, but also at the same time, almost too big to even fully see, like when you when you sit too close to a movie screen. And okay, that's my monologue for the episode. I'm out, everybody. Brennan's going to take over.
0: <laughs> but yeah, no, it, I, I that's fantastic, and I agree. But I, I would even say that the architecture of the plot is only of the real story is only visible in retrospect and you need to have a lot of trust in pta that he's going to get you to the right place if you're the kind of person who really relies on a plot to guide you through a kind of narrative tapestry like this one and every element is so thematically infused that you need to be like locating those ideas to see how they're in dialogue with one another for you to really engage with a lot of what the movie is doing but i don't think it's very clear for some people especially on first viewing what those are and i think it's fair to say that the a plot of the movie that begins with shasta and wolfman is really about the destruction of a romance. This is kind of a great breakup movie, right? Where Shasta and Doc are in the middle of this breakup and they have complex feelings for one another and they're kind of together, but they're kind of not. And they're kind of these um, uh, orbiting phantoms where they come into each other's lives and they fall out of each other's lives and so on. So the A plot is the destruction of a romance, whereas the B plot, that begins um, with the search for Owen Wilson's character is the reassembly of a romance, and the reassembly of a family where- I never thought of it like
3: that. You're right, you're exactly right.
0: Yeah, and, and so the movie kind of morphs from a breakup movie where Doc is trying to fix another family. That becomes kind of the heart of the whole movie. And what I think is interesting about that is you can wonder well, why is Doc doing it? Is it because he's a good man? Is it because of whatever? And what's good about the scene that uh, I I chose for us to talk about, uh, and this isn't the sole reason or even close to the sole reason I picked this one, but it's because uh, Bigfoot has this line where he decides to investigate it where he says sometimes it's just about doing the right thing. Right thing, yep. And I think that's almost a thesis statement for Doc's character going through this web of haze and narrative malarkey, where it's at, ultimately, it just, you just do do the right thing. And I think that's weirdly um, a, a very, uh, without having read the book, it is clearly a through line in Pinchon's work that the, uh, narr- the uh, universe will always remain kind of elusive. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be, the good guy, or you shouldn't try to do the right thing. Um, So going back to the warmth we were talking about with PTA, I think that's part of what appealed to him here, where he kind of just got to tell like a weirdly feel-good movie uh, (laughs) in a weird way. It's it's weirdly wholesome when you actually break down the overall shape of the story. That's such
3: a great pull quote, a weirdly feel-good movie in a weird way. They should have gone with that, Brendan. They should have. <laughs> but, you know, and yeah, I think you're exactly right. And what's also interesting, though, is, you know, a, a constant comparison that I make in the show is how. And this becomes a, a there's a episode that we've recorded already. For the scene with Doc and Shasta running in the room. And a big crux of that episode is how how much colder actually the book is than the film, the film is mm-hmm. infused with that very wistful kind of wry familial pta vibe you know the right. the guy who just seems like he just wants to be around all of these people all the time and as i said the the book is much colder and i but i don't want to jump too deeply into our scene before we actually view it but it you mentioned that 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 wonderful line that maybe did quite strike me as hard as Until to this very moment when you when you underlined it for me, but what's interesting is in the book when Bigfoot says sometimes about it's about doing the right thing, he bats his eyes at Doc and makes this mugging face, and he's being sarcastic, like he's being wholly
2: sarcastic
3: about it, and he's basically busting Doc's balls, like yeah, I'm gonna go do the right thing because I'm your cop, I'm I'm gonna help you solve this mystery, and he's very. It's very rude to, to 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 dock in this sequence. But what I love, and I think you're right, what I love about this moment is in the film, there's no whiff of irony or joking. Well, besides the fact that he's once again filleting a frozen chocolate-covered banana, there's no irony or jokes in this moment. Bigfoot is simply saying, yeah, it's the right thing to do. And I think he has ulterior motives for which we can discuss after we watch yeah. the scene. There is that moment where I think I think he is being honest, where he's saying this is this is the right thing to do. I'm still a cop, whatever my feelings might be about the LAPD that we're going to learn about later in the film. Right. I'm a cop, and this 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 little hippie, you know, I might beat the shit out of him now and again, but he's bringing something. That, this matters. What what he's put on my table right now, this matters. And right. sometimes all you can do is the right thing and 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 handle this. And so I think you're very right. And I think this is one of those great moments where the difference between the novel and the difference between the film are they're minute when you describe the difference, but they are, it is an, the, the, the difference in terms of the totality of vision is so vast because mm-hmm. I, that minor change that, that removing the mugging and the eye batting and all that, it makes this moment so as you would say weirdly sweet and weirdly heartfelt Mm -hmm. despite the fact that every time we've seen this character before he's beating the hell out of Doc or he's blowing bananas this is like this is a weirdly sweet moment of genuine decency from this guy and like previous guest drew mcqueenie said in times of chaos like this sometimes it's those little decencies those are the only things that you can really hang on to those are the only things that really matter
0: yeah and actually i would go a step further where in the film i think that the whole relationship between doc and bigfoot is incredibly sweet and it reminds me of the love hate love relationship between freddie and lancaster dodd in the master where you know these men are weirdly bound to one another they don't always understand why or how Mm -hmm. and they spend a big part of the film as kind of antagonizing the other, Yeah. except deep down they have a bond and a love and affection for one another they cannot themselves decipher or even reckon with.
3: You know, it's funny that you say that because I always viewed this film as a companion piece to the master, but I always viewed it as a companion piece because I feel like, Freddie and Master's relationship is somewhat analogous to Doc and Shasta's in that because I always feel like Freddie and the Master, you know, PTA has said so many times about inherent vice. It's the story of, you know, it's, he's like, it's, it's about that one old lady you can't, you just can't let go of no matter how hard you try. Like, you know, she's bad. He had this great quote. He's like, you know, she's terrible for you. You know, she's going to ruin your life, but you can't help sitting there in the middle of the night going, who's she fucking? Who's she in love with? Does she miss me? Because I miss her. I don't know. She's going to ruin my life, but I I need her. And I feel like Freddy and Master have a very similar relationship. But, again, and you are just pulling wool from my eyes, comment after comment here, Brendan, but <laughs> I, I think too that there is something very Freddy and Master about Doc and Bigfoot, and I think part of it is that I think in, in The Master, I think one of the things that draws Freddy and and master together is they both have a they both have a need for edge capital e edge to consume and live on the edge and that no one else in their lives can really keep up with them yet at the same time i think there there are crucial differences that they each have that that they almost they almost crave in the other person because it balances them out you know master has that ability to be in control and to be steady where uh, And I think that Freddy, there's a part of Freddy that craves that, that, that stability in life. And then similarly, I think Freddy, you know, he's wild. He's a wild animal. And I think there's part of Master that desperately wants to be, just to be able to cut loose and live without consequence and not be responsible for this, this quasi-religious cult. And I think right. that Doc and Bigfoot, I don't know how much Doc really wants to be like Bigfoot. But I do think that when Bigfoot sees Doc, I think he, Bigfoot sees a, a, less, a younger, less damaged version of himself. Because Bigfoot is someone who has lost someone he cares about. And the world has irrevocably changed because of that. And I think he's looking at Doc and seeing that Doc is kind of going through that same thing. Where Doc has lost someone that means everything to him. And his world is irrevocably now in, in the middle of spinning out of control. And I think that they are they're woven together because of that. I think it's the very reason why when Doc is going through Mickey Wolfman's ties, he's able to just shiver and go Bigfoot and know that Bigfoot's outside because they're just they're they're both vibrating on the same atomic level of heartbreak. And I think that 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 bonds them, even if they even if they don't want to be, even if they came up as rivals when Bigfoot was working the beach beat on Gordita Beach. And constantly kicking down Doc's door and that's what gives him his nickname I think that once once Bigfoot became a victim of Inherent Vice and is now seeing Doc kind of suffer the same fate I do think that there is a a brotherhood that, that develops between them like there's so many great scenes like when he, he calls Doc on the phone and all he has to say is hey it's me that's, right. that's what you your friend or that's
0: what you say to a girlfriend or a boyfriend That's, hey it's me it's me right yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure this is a think piece waiting to be written, but really the last three
2: PTA alert movies,
0: film <laughs> alert film Twitter, um, but the last three PTA movies you could say are about weird dom sub-relationships uh, one, <laughs> one way or another um, between Phantom wow, Thread cool. and Inherent Vice. Right.
2: Wow. Um,
3: I wonder what's going on in PTA's house.
0: Hopefully a lot of fun is all I can say. Um yeah. But they're they're happy, they're doing well. But no, in in seriousness, I do think that what's so interesting about their dynamic is that um it does defy easy categorization, but even in moments uh like the very famous, you know, Moto Penakeko line, yeah, um there's an ease of how they interact with one another. And it reminds me so much of some of my friends who maybe always bust each other's balls, but they like would die for the other person and they love the other person. And, but just seeing them interact, you would never know it in 10 million years because of how they interact and how kind of mean spirited they can seem, but underneath you could kind of feel that shell of uh, warmth that exists inside. And I I love that element and not to go into another person's scene, but it reminds me so much of just how startling it is when uh, doc says, but you know, you need a keeper and every moment I see that it, it creeps up on me and it's like a wallop of emotion that just came out of nowhere where doc clearly feels so much for Bigfoot, even as big Bigfoot in theory is being a madman.
3: <laughs> oh, god! Yes, I can't help but laugh whenever I think of it. Even though I agree, and I have the same kind of emotional crescendo in that moment where they're both realizing they're the same. They're even saying the exact same dialogue on top of one another. But yeah, and there's that moment where he's like, "Yeah, you do. You need a keeper." And I, I also think of that scene, and it's a moment that I don't feel like gets as much talk as some of the other maybe just because it's not as funny and it's not as easy to grab onto but i always one of the things i always think of when i think of this film a scene that always pops uh, in the memory is the sequence after doc has killed adrian prussia and he's slowly walking towards his uh bigfoot's car and everything is out of focus around doc uh and slowly we see bigfoot and the moment that doc Realizes that Bigfoot. He doesn't know why, but he, he realizes Bigfoot's planning to rip off the Golden thing, the fully fucking weird outfit that kills people, right. and the the plaintive, desperate way Doc tries to protect him and stop him. By, he's like, you know, I've se- I've seen this movie before. This character comes to a bad end. He's like, and he, he's like, um, with oh, uh, Phoenix's performance, it, we've never seen Doc as out of control. As he is in that moment, he is literally pure feral Joaquin Phoenix, where you can't understand a word he's saying. He's growling his words, and he is desperately trying to stop Bigfoot because he thinks Bigfoot's going to get himself killed. And I, I don't feel like a lot of people point out that scene, but he's literally trying to say – it's, it's funny the way he does it. He points a gun at Bigfoot's head to try to save Bigfoot's life and stop him from doing something stupid. And I do think right. that there is that constant push-pull of hating each other. But when the, moment, when the moment comes, Doc, and before he can understand what Bigfoot is doing and the leverage that Bigfoot is giving him, Doc tries to save Bigfoot's life. He, he does try to be his keeper in that moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a good moment to transition into the scene itself because I do think the scene itself that I've chosen is very indicative of all of the above themes. So it, it weirdly sets up perfectly kind of what I want to talk about.
3: Well, that's that's all well and good, Brendan, but I I, I don't know who the host of this show is, you or me. I, I, <laughs> I, I guess I can leave. If, if you want to go ahead and start editing. Blake, let the man take over. Uh, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're exactly right. I'm going to calm myself down uh, and have a good cry because I'm very upset at you taking over like that. But uh, no, you're absolutely right. So with that in mind, Let's take a look at it, let's reacquaint ourselves with our old pal Christian F. bigfoot Bjornson, and his cadre of frozen chocolate-covered bananas, and we will be right back.
4: Reluctant, maybe even a little desperate, Doc figured he had to go visit Bigfoot now. On principle, he tried to spend as little time around the glasshouse as possible. All this strange alternate cop history and cop politics Cop dynasties, cop heroes and evildoers, saintly cops and psycho cops, cops too stupid to live and cops too smart for their own good, insulated by secret loyalties and codes of silence from the world they'd all been given to control. Bigfoot's native element, the air he breathed, the big time he'd been so crazy to get away from the beach and be promoted into. Then why so grumpy, Bigfoot? Doc remembered, dimly, a story from long past. A rumor about a partner of Bigfoot's who'd been shot and killed a while back in the line of duty. And ever since then, the story went Bigfoot had worked alone.
1: I hope this won't be another one of those unabridged, paranoid, hippie monologues we seem obliged to sit through. What if someone dies but is resurrected? Not at first glance a matter for homicide. So who around here handles resurrections? Bunko squad, usually. Does that mean the LAPD believes that every uh, return from the dead is some kind of calm? You're dead, you're dead. Are we we talking philosophy? That there's Coy Harlingen, the stiffened question that was taken last night. Remind me why I give a shit again. I work for the department as a snitch. Not to mention some patriotic badasses known as Vigilant California. Who knows, they may or may not have been in on the raid of Channel View Estates. You remember that place, Bigfoot? All right. All right, I'll look into it personally. Sometimes it's just about doing the right thing.
3: As we descend into a land of strange alternate cop history and cop politics, cop dynasties, cop heroes and evildoers, saintly cops and psycho cops, cops too stupid to lie, and cops too smart for their own good, as we slip from the first hour into the film's second, there's a—I just want to make note of the strange bit of editing that takes place right here. Time begins to slow. And as Doc walks from the sunshine outside of the glass house and into the, you know, these dull interiors of the Parker Center, the film finds itself in slow motion. It's as if to delineate that we are entering another world, even though we've visited once before, right after uh, Doc gets KO'd at Chick Planet. But again, arbitrary though it may be, it does feel like right here we are entering a distinctly new part of the film, the the film's second half. This the strange slowdown, which may literally just be a bit of narrative cinematic expediency, slowing down the doc's walk so that Joanna Newsome can finish her sort of these narration, but it makes it feel like this second hour is a world entirely into itself, as I was saying earlier. If the first half is all intro and all set up, it's, I feel like it's the with this scene that the themes and the characters and all these disparate elements finally begin to to cohere And I just want to quote one more time. I promise this is not going to turn into an audio book of your essay But you did note something and I and I I don't feel like the the editing in Inherent Vice has been mentioned much on this show aside from the The slippery way in which sort is presented but you noted that By using subtle changes in cutting patterns, Anderson and editor Leslie Jones call attention to the innate strangeness of film editing to foster a pervading and powerful sense of paranoia. It's nothing short of inspired, and only someone as devout a believer in the magic of movies would think to twist its basic foundation so brilliantly. And I know we wanted to cut back to Bigfoot and his relationship to Doc, but I had to mention that. Because I, there's really no other moment quite like this one in the film where there's this strange slowdown in time. And again, maybe it's just to let Sortleys wrap up what she's got to say. But it does feel like we're going through a tunnel from hour one of setup into hour two of payoff. And, and it just is where we're, there's an ominousness to it and a haunting nature to it before, like, just an absolute hard cut back to real time and staring at Josh Brolin's giant head on the screen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And here's what I think is so fascinating about all this. And it connects to literally both sides of what you're talking about. Um, I'm fascinated by scenes in movies and in books or, or theater that capture the whole story or movie or whatever in microcosm where it somehow wraps up all the themes and ideas all in one little scene i love that shit and uh (laughs) there's a great scene in the irishman that does this it might be my most uh my favorite scene from last year where it's the world war ii flashback where yeah. Sheeran ha- uh, has a gun pointed at the men digging their own graves, and he muses to himself, uh, "Why, like, why are they digging? Does he think I'm going to oh. let them go?" And as though he doesn't understand, he's continuing to dig in his own life, even though he knows he will one day die. Um, that's a, a pretty elegant metaphor for everybody marching through life to death, and we keep on digging, right? Um, this is similar. This little. Sequence and it all starts with the fact that it has this wild, insane transition. Because I think the secret to what makes this movie work on a nuts and bolts level is all of the crazy dissolves, is all of the uh, surreal scene changes where one moment fades into the next moment. The whole movie has this kind of feel where. It's like when you have a daydream where you just like zone out at work and when you come to again, you didn't lose time. So it's like you you went from one moment of the present to the next and you feel something missing. There's something elliptical about it. And I feel like that's so much of how Inherent Vice operates. And there's, a, in my view, a bunch of scenes like this all through the whole movie. But I don't think there's a scene that does this uh, in a more direct way that wakes up a change in the film of what's going on. Because as you say, it is a transition from connecting the A and B plots together. So it is a incredibly important scene on a narrative level, but stylistically it's doing this thing that I think is what unlocked the secret. And I don't wanna speak for PTA, heaven forbid, but I would bet you that if somebody actually asked him about it in an interview, what was one of the things that made you realize you could adapt Inherent Vice I would bet that it, one of the things he might say is he figured out how to get that hazy vibe through the transitions from scene to scene. And because I haven't seen another movie that does it in quite the same way, there's also a phenomenal use of music uh, or voiceover that connects multiple scenes together in these mini montages, but they don't really feel like montages because they're like discrete scenes. So it's like, why are, why is there music connecting all of these? Or why is there a voiceover connecting all of these moments? But the answer is because you're meant to just kind of be on a, a lazy river in a weird way, just like passing from one moment to the next. Um, And in this case, in the way that it captures all this, so it has this like lazy river vibe where it's slowly transitioning you from one moment to the next. You've got Greenwood's moody ass weird score uh, you've got slapstick comedy, which is through the whole movie. It's it's hilarious. This movie, but in, it's weird because you've got the voiceover and the spooky, otherworldly score during the slapstick. Yeah. What do, I've never seen that combination ever before. Um, you've got this Pinchon esque talk of societies and uh, code and control, <laughs> and um, I mean that's like all of his uh, brand in just a few sentences. And on top of all of that, you, you, it segues via transition into the loneliness and pain of Bigfoot. Which, you know, and pin, so much of on is about loneliness in a, like a, a, a world beyond comprehension. Where you're, and then the, the scene between Bigfoot and Doc is them sifting through information that they barely understand, and they can barely see how it fits together. So it kind of is almost like a weird microcosm of everything the movie is doing all at once. And I've always loved this scene for that reason. I've always kind of thought it was the turnkey to understand the whole movie. If you can understand the logic of how the scene was designed, you have a better shot of understanding the movie. Um, So that's really why I wanted to pick it.
3: I feel like Mark Ruffalo at the end of Zodiac when he's sitting at the table across from Jake Gyllenhaal, and he's Gyllenhaal's laying out for him all the ways in which Arthur Lee Allen was connected to the first Zodiac victim. And he's like, I've walked it door to door. And the way <laughs> Ruffalo looks at all of it, and he looks up at Gyllenhaal, he's like, Jesus Christ, is this accurate? I feel like that as you just <laughs> laid that out for me. You know, this scene, I've always, I've, I, I, I love this. I mean, Jesus, is there a scene in this movie I don't love? I've always loved this scene. I love anything with Bigfoot. And I and I love it because it is kind of a pivot point, uh, both plot-wise and thematically, where we finally get all of these kind of lines of force intersecting for the first time. Koi, Doc, Bigfoot. But you're right that, you could look at this sequence, and I don't know if I can think of another movie. Well, besides a certain nearly three-hour film called Heat, but I can't. <laughs> it's hard to think of another film where all of these modular scenes are so rich when you pull them out of the movie as a whole and just hold it up and look at it by itself. There is such a richness and depth to this film on a scene-by-scene basis. And it, I got to say, I missed it. You are a hundred percent correct when you could argue that. Minus the fact that Shasta Faye is not in the fil- in right. scene. That's sure. kind of, in a way, that's kind of fitting because she's always absent. She's always missing. So in a way, her not being here is fitting. This really is a microcosm of everything the movie does. And you've got these two guys who are missing someone from their life. You've got the, the humor and the, the goofballery of, of Doc literally taking one of those great Joaquin Phoenix pratfalls. And who knew that he was a great physical comedian? Before this, this um, but as you said, yeah, it never occurred to me. Yeah, that's happening right beneath this flow of heavy pinch about secret cop societies and the heaviness of Johnny Greenwood. And then you've got Madonna blowing right on top of conspiranoid politics and underground societies. It had never occurred to me how rich this scene is until just this moment. And I am I'm sitting here like Ruflo, just shaking my head. like <laughs> You are gonna take this show from me, are you? That that's what this episode is. This, <laughs> this is speaking of slow fade outs, this is just a slow baton handoff. And you're just gonna t- host the second hour of this show.
0: But yeah, it's you're a podcast heist. I'm sorry that you had to find out this way. <laughs> yeah, it's a dark day for me. Jesus. But yeah,
3: you're right. And um, something else, speaking of speaking of intersections and speaking of you know, this this sequence being a microcosm of all of what the film does, it is also a microcosm of all of its various plots, as you said. And a few episodes back, in the Topanga Canyon party house sequences, you know, I noted that, that Doc and Koi are these kind of like doppelganged mirrors of one another. Both of them with their three-letter names, working undercover infiltrating of movement them, which should ostensibly be their own their own movement their own home their own place their, where they belong but it's something that has somehow passed them both by they don't don't belong there anymore doc he's not down with the nazi biker regalia uh, amongst all of the paisley and flower prints and Koi is alienated by the the sheep-like subservience that's required by the organizers of this party. And there, what's magic to me about this scene, all, it, it's it's like the tumblers are all falling into place in this cosmic lo- lock. And with the intersection of Koi's plotline and Bigfoot's, and Doc tying them together, because the reason I say that is because Bigfoot is just like koi and bigfoot is just like doc that strange and dangerous cop world that sorely describes at the top of the scene that's no longer bigfoot's world just the way hippiedom is, is no longer koi and doc's it's passed him by and in a film that's about the inherent vice of time that it is that its unyielding and unchanging nature is that it's going to invariably change everything and take everything and that it cannot be insured against then these three men have all lost the thing that means the most to them uh an old lady a family and a partner either a a love partner or simply a work partner or simply uh the avatar of cop loyalty that leash muses is the one thing about cops that doc could actually respect each of them has had those things taken from them by the fang and it it brands them and it unites them and then makes them like triplets in a way each kind of resembling each other and I, i find that so fascinating and haunting and sad and funny all at once
0: yeah and i think the key to just the way that the characters foil one another has so much to do with the fact that they're all um, kind of searching for some kind of like that line in Mad Max Fury Road, you know, searching for some kind of redemption. Um, They're all looking for some way, uh, maybe not to connect per se, but they're looking for a way to retain or retrieve something, or if they can't get it back, they try to get something different. I think that is ultimately why the movie snakes around to the reuniting a family where uh so much has been taken away we need to put something back together again and i think that so much of inherent vice is about yielding to time and it's cruel arrow that if you could do anything to slow it if not for yourself but for somebody else then it's it it's a task Worth doing. I have to mention, uh, my day job is as an insurance agent, and Inherent Vice is maybe one of the best insurance movies <laughs> of all time, um, along with Double Indemnity. So I just have to put that out there into the void that I've never seen insurance used with such uh, wistful uh, poetry in a film before, uh, or, or a book that- in this case. Yeah. So I I just had to put that out there. Um, But no, I do love the way that the movie treats the information, the flow of information as these conduits for uncovering the pain and trauma and psychology of these people. And again, I, I haven't read the book, but in The Crying Lot of 49, that's exactly the same trajectory where that's a book where, characters journey deeper and deeper into a web of societies and societies within societies and systems within systems to the point where um, uh, it's kind of like what uh, scientists like to say about the search for God or the search for the divine. Every scientific discovery, you would think it gets you closer to uncovering these great mysteries but on some level, the closer you get, the farther away it goes. It's like pi, it's infinitely divisible, right? The closer we get to understanding the mysteries of the universe, by definition, the farther away they are. And I feel like that is, in essence, what the characters are experiencing. And we open this conversation talking about um, so much about how does the plot matter or how does. Uh, the movie operate. is it based on feel is it do you, do you understand intellectually but I think this is key and the scene points it out how uh, fleeting the plot becomes and how fleeting the information is because the more you try to wrangle it together, the more it by definition will slip away because the golden fang becomes this all encompassing metaphor for kind of the elusiveness of uh, order or logic and it's nefarious in its nature. And it becomes kind of a metaphor for time in a way. Um, So all you can do within this network and within this unknowability is what you can do in front of you to survive and get on and things like that. And I also think that's part of why drug abuse is such a massive part of the movie. That's one way people deal with this issue. People. How with time
3: and time's loss, but just to numb yourself to it. If you can't insure against it, the next best thing is simply inuring yourself to it so that it doesn't
0: hurt as bad. Exactly. And so that's why I think the golden fang is so nefarious when this vertical system where they get people hooked on the drug to numb themselves from the pain they are metaphorically, thematically, and literally causing. And then it gives them fake replacements of sorts. Um the teeth, I think, is a great Baudrillardian metaphor for how they've they created a system where they are destroying our real bodies and then replacing them with fake bodies um, in a certain sense. And uh, I think that the characters who unfortunately befall that trajectory where they get forced into the situation where they're being exploited and they're trying to find a way to break that system, well, guess what? The catharsis of the movie is Doc. Getting, helping get a family out of that entire system permanently. And he's foregoing, pretend, who knows how much money, you know, he could have possibly gotten um, in the process. And yeah. I think that is so moving and so keyed about the movie and why uh, it, it's so hard to kind of get your head around what it's doing at any particular moment, just because of the fact that to key into certain elements, you really have to understand oh, how is the drug abuse tying into what Doc is doing? How does that tie into the in- inherent vice theming? Things like that.
3: Oh, my God. There's so much to work with right there. And again, <laughs> I swear to God, you sound like you're taking over the show. There's so much to work with right there. But first, I'll say, you know, when you talk about what they're, you know, all you can do is the thing that's in, basically in front of you When this, when the scope of this is so vast. And I think you're right that for a lot of people... In, in the film and in life, you can't you can't insure against it. you can only inure yourself and that is with something that numbs you. But I also think that's why that's why Bigfoot's line is so meaningful in this scene. sometimes it's about doing the right thing. So there's the you can do the one thing that's in front of you that you can do is a minor thing. It is a small thing. But it's the right thing that you can do for Bigfoot. It's like, oh, well, I can I can run I can run this name up the flagpole and see what happens. I can I can look in the Koi Harlingen. For Doc, it's not. You know, he, he's looking at a situation where, sure, yeah, Crocker Finway would much rather just give him what five hundred, maybe a half million dollars for for this incalculably uh, 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 expensive, heroin, uncut heroin. But I I, I get the feeling that in addition to Doc just wanting to do the right thing, you know, I can see him looking at that going, well, what am I going to do with all that money? Like, I can get high, but Shasta's still going to be gone. I'm still going to be sad. You know, this will this will have meant nothing. Going through all of this pain and suffering and sorrow will have meant nothing. At least if I help this family and I can like if I can cure this girl, the little kid blues, then that's something That, that that's. It's it's a right thing that can matter. It's something that can be of, of weight and meaning amidst the sea of
0: just numbness
3: and meaninglessness.
0: This can matter. This can have value. Exactly. And I also wonder if part of the reason he was disinterested in any money, and although he does obviously make the crack about, oh, well, how much would I have to ask so you would respect me or whatever, <laughs> is I wonder if he's worried it would gentrify him in some way. And it would... Assimilate him into the system that he thinks is represented by Bigfoot, you yeah. know, the, the quote unquote man, capital M. Um, and I think that's an element, too, where he's weirdly comfortable, although it's always played for laughs in these weird heightened scenarios where he's uh, going undercover in these very rich, wealthy environments to great comic effect. But uh, he's clearly deeply uncomfortable and paranoid about assimilating himself into these environments in any lasting way. So I think that's part of why the, the money is so devalued to him compared to the value of saving a family and human life.
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, at what point in the film do you ever see Doc take money for any of these cases? Yeah, Shasta, he, he, he's exactly. Working pro, Shasta, he's working pro bono when uh, you never actually see an exchange of money When he goes to Hope Harlingen's house and she asks him to check this out, you never see her pay him or him accept any money. He's like, yeah, I'll check it out. I'll see what I can see. And then when he bumps into Koi outside of Club Asiatique. Yeah, he wants information. Well, there's that great line where he's like, you know, Koi's like, can I have you look into this little family in Torrance? And under, but I thought Grey Lions, I understand, you know, I can't pay you right now. And and the way Doc's like, well, you know, if you're the kind of person that thinks information, never does he ever ask for money, nor does he ever seem all that interested in collecting on it. And Mm -hmm. it might be the same reason why he doesn't pay his lawyer, you know, that great Sancho Smiley. Smiley's like, Docs pay me, or (laughs) patients, clients pay me for work, Doc. Clients pay me for work, Doc. And, but yeah, I think you might be right that, especially, Especially after you see the film and you see that line that Crocker Fenway has about losing all respect for someone like Doc the second he pays rent, that you you think about that line and you go back and you watch and yeah he he never wants to seem to be a part of the that a part of that system and a part of that machine he wants to remain if not untouched by it at least not culpable and not involved.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you just brought up. Um, Cracker Fenway played by uh Martin Donovan, and this is a tangent that I have to go on briefly uh, if you'll indulge me here because this is actually one of my favorite aspects of inherent this, vice in general.
3: This is an inherent vice podcast, you will find nothing more indulgent,
0: <laughs>
3: nothing more indulgent on the internet, and that's saying something.
0: So, go ahead, yeah, absolutely. So, let's indulge here. So, one thing I love about the movie is Okay, so let's just think about who's in this movie, period, right? Um, it has uh, like a murderer's row of character performers and A list stars or former A list stars in all of these little roles, some of which get seconds. This includes My Rudolph. Uh, just for example, it includes, you know, Michael Kenneth Williams. It includes, uh, Obviously, Benicio del Toro, although his is kind of a media role, but you have all these pseudo cameos. And I mean, just think about this sentence that out of context, don't think about Inherent Vice for a second. Imagine that we were just talking about movies in general. And I mentioned in passing, Wreath Witherspoon is in a PTA movie. (laughs) You would not automatically go, oh, she wait, which? Oh, she's in Inherent Vice that's exactly the way you would talk about it. You would not automatically go, oh yeah, uh, Inherent Vice is a Wreath Witherspoon movie. Um, I say this because, and I I don't want this to sound uh, negative because I think all of these actors do a phenomenal job in the movie. But I think one thing that is so beautiful about Inherent Vice is that it is so cohesive that all of these rich, small performances form kind of a, a tapestry together. They are all of a piece. They don't even feel like individual performances or characters because they blend into this whole so beautifully. And you see all these people seem rich and alive, and they do what character actors are supposed to do, where you see the character, not the actor. And this goes for Eric Roberts. Uh, I think this goes so much for Reese uh, Witherspoon, who's one of the most famous performers on the planet. It goes for Martin Short. Uh, it goes for all of these people who kind of pop up in these glancing parts uh, that are typically parts smaller than what these actors are accustomed to. And I just love that. And I love that you meet all these people and you barely even see the actor or you barely see the performance. It seems like they're not even really acting with a capital A. It seems like they're they're just inhabiting the world in the same way that the performers and let's say The Wire we're inhabiting that world. Um, and it's something that I haven't really seen a lot of people talk about this movie, but when you actually think what the number of performers in the movie who are pretty famous, but nobody ever associates them with this movie, on one hand, you can go, oh, maybe they're not very memorable performances. No, I think the issue is that they're all so good that they elevate the movie without needing to elevate themselves. You're so right. And it is it's
3: bizarre. I love the perversity of casting so many stars in a film, this askew and this strange. And, you know, this is, this is the kind of cast, like you remember, you know, the mid two thousands, you'd get those like holiday base, like r- romantic comedies. And it, everyone would have like a, a 10 minute role and like everybody would be in the goddamn movie. Uh, this is like that, except it's, except it's good. But um, what I what I think you've hit on here is, I think having these stars in the film, and let's, let's, they're not just stars. They're 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 stars because they're all amazing performers. You know, they're not just stars without the chops. And I think that PTA wisely though uses both of those elements in that he casts in in this film he casts people who he knows. Are able, canny, gifted performers who can disappear in a role, even if that
0: role has three minutes of screen time. I mean, think about Owen Wilson. I mean, it, I it, mean, for God's sake, he's used to it now from Wes Anderson, where he blends <laughs> in to this aesthetic so perfectly, yeah, and he becomes almost another uh, a paint stroke on a painting. Sure, right, or hell, so. Eric Roberts,
3: a performer as incredibly strong as Eric Roberts, is in the movie for, what, four minutes? Yeah. Like four minutes in a newspaper photo, and that's it. But what I think is so so sharp about that is that PTA uses both aspects of these performers. He he obviously uses their incredible uh, chops and their gifted ability to perform because I don't think there's a single performance – in this movie where you go, Oh, there's that. This is a bum note. Oh boy. Right. Bigfoot's Bigfoot's no. coming on again. Ah oh God, Brolin is just out of his element. Just woefully miscast. There's none of that. They all, as you said, as as a character, as a as performers, they disappear into these roles and and lose themselves. And you don't, I think, think about when you're watching Penny Kimball, uh, assistant DA, you don't think Oh, Reese Witherspoon, you think Penny Campbell. And when you see Mickey Wolfman, you think Mickey Wolfman, not Eric Roberts. And yet, I think the other half of that, the other side of that coin is while PTA casts all of these actors because they are incredible performers, I do think he relies on their stardom in that they're all capital F faces. And in a plot mm. this complex, and this labyrinthine and this easy to get lost in, you're not going to remember these incredible Pinchonian names like Japonica Fenway and Rudy Blatnoid and Bigfoot Bjornsson and Crocker Fenway. But you will go, okay, now the girl, the Reese Witherspoon, when Reese, uh, you you might not be referring to to the character by Reese's name because you couldn't see the character, but it's because you can't remember all these names in a plot so complex. And I feel like having these famous faces attached to these characters allows a more layman audience member to be able to to somewhat hang on to what's going on. Because you might not remember Sancho Smilex's name, you're like, oh yeah, Benito del Toro, the wacky lawyer. I remember him. I I I got that. And so I think that's such a smart bit of, of casting on PTA's part in that he casts people who would disappear into the roles they wouldn't be like late period jack nicholson where they're just playing themselves they would right. disappear into the characters but the, those characters would be able to rely on those actors faces those capital f faces that we would be able that we as an audience if we ever got lost we could just hold on to that and go okay i okay i remember reese witherspoon it's his girlfriend okay i got it
0: got it moving forward i love so much that you talked about PTA and faces because I think as his filmmaking has matured, particularly from There Will Be Blood to Now, where he almost seems like he's been reborn as a different filmmaker in a weird way. He uh, loves with, faces. Yeah, he's become such a connoisseur of the close up and the power. Of the close-up in a way his previous work did not hone in on nearly as much where you know for magnolia boogie nights etc hard eight even uh, punch drunk love his camera is mobile he is relying on the kineticism of his camera movements his editing and his very loud music choices to envelop and move you in the scenes but as his filmmaking has matured he has gotten increasingly uh, relying on the greatest special effect on the planet, which is an actor's face. And he always goes on and on about Jonathan Demi close ups yep. and how much he wishes he could emulate the Jonathan Demi close up. And I just watched uh, Silence of the Lambs uh, uh, somewhat recently. And the faces in that movie are so unbelievably powerful that I think it's like 50% of the heavy lifting of that movie. And I remember him being in awe of Barry Jenkins and the close-ups he gets in his movies. And I think that you see that so much throughout Inherent Vice in particular, where the camera is often static or barely moving, and all you have to go on is a face, and maybe at best a medium shot, where you see like the upper half of the performer and typically in like a one shot sometimes there's two shots in the movie but not all the time and he's relying not just on the actor to give a good performance but the kind of the old movie magic voodoo of the right face and he had that great line about how uh when he's talking to barry jenkins about this i think it was on the director's guild podcast interview about how like Barry, how the hell do you get those amazing close-ups? I imagine a big part of it is just getting the right faces. Not even the wizardry of cinematography, not the performance, just quote-unquote getting the right faces. So I love that you say, not just how the faces in Inherent Vice would be recognizable, but that's a big part of it too, but it's the fact that the right face will connect you emotionally and psychologically to a character. And that can guide you through the movie, the way that the Eric Roberts looks like sunburnt and just completely on another planet. And he's just on Mars. And that look of just the way he is in that scene, you carry that through the whole movie. And I think that there's probably no better example of this in the whole film than my God, Catherine Watterson, or Waterson, who just came out of nowhere Fair. in this movie. And while she is amazing in the movie, so much of it is just her face. And so much of it is her movement. And she's almost, uh, I, I have a theory about the movie, about one of the main engines of the mood is actually our scenes with her, not just because of the music or the filmmaking, but just this weird otherworldly alien, like a seductive alien uh, she is just Her presence is so uncanny and bizarre. And I think that so much of it has to do with just her movie star face that has all of this, uh, uh, meaning kind of in it that, and you project yourself into that. It reminds me of David Lynch talking about how he casts his movies off the photos of his actors and actresses. He doesn't look at, uh, like a audition tape, he doesn't look at a sample reel. He doesn't even really look at their previous work. He just wants their face, and that's all he wants. And I feel like so much of Inherent Vice, in particular, more than any of his other movies, really rely on that. Um, and it's kind of a masterclass in that technique.
3: You're right, and I love that you can you know I love that you compared or you brought in Lynch to the conversation because I think that something that pta and lynch share in addition to this love of faces is it's a capital t trust in their gut in their instinct the way that lynch doesn't need someone to audition he just needs to see their eight by ten and he can read that face and make a call to have this person be in his film or be the anchor of this particular scene without ever having actually met them before it's one of the great parts of the 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 behind the scenes features of twin peaks the return
0: oh my god that stuff is gold
3: is how the actor walking on set that day it will be the first time they've ever met david lynch and they're like literally shaking (laughs) his hand and being and meeting him in that moment like They've never had a phone call. Hello. They've never gone over the script. They've never gone over the scene. It's just them walking on set in costume, meeting David Lynch, saying hi, and Lynch saying, "Okay, we're going to go over here, and I'm going to show you where you know here's your mark." The the level of insane trust that Lynch has in his instincts to not bother to meet his performer until the day they are stepping in front of the camera, that is almost superhuman self assurance mm-hmm. and trust. <laughs> I don't think that Pete is at that quite God level of self esteem. I do think that there is a level of trust in the faces that wasn't there before. I think there was a Coke kid's insecurity with needing to show how good he was. And I love Heartache and I or Sydney. Let's be let's let's be cool. Right, cool. Sure, yeah. I love Sydney. I love Boogie Nights. I love Magnolia. I love Punch Drunk. But there is a there's a young man's energy to that or a young man's insecurity, I think, to those films. I need to show you that I've seen Touch of Evil and I've seen all the De Palma movies I'm supposed to see. And I've seen the Altman flicks I'm supposed to see. And you're going to see me channel that because I'm a wonder kid. But there is, I think, a wee dad's maturity to the to the latter half of his career in which. He trusts that he doesn't need to do these wild-ass, wild Scorsese, twisty, turny, uh, uh, Goodfellas-style camera tricks. He doesn't need to do these huge panoramic widescreen vistas. He can have a scene in a dull, off-white kitchen nook in Torrance, California, where a semi-stone detective is talking to a recently widowed mother and just have a series of two shots and there's a great line that he has about that scene where he simply says he said something to the effect of in an interview a big a big screen close-up of jenna malone what's better than that in cinema what's better than that
2: Mm. because i think
3: i think he knows that he cast the right woman in that role so he knows he's got you the right or at least the right person. Maybe not everyone likes inherent vice, but the right kind of person is gonna watch that scene and they're gonna fall in love with Jenna in in the way that you wanna help her. You wanna do sometimes it's about doing the right thing, and you want the right thing done for this woman and this family, even if she used to be a horrible mother to amethyst, because of her face and because of the warmth that this performer can give this role. You want Doc to do the right thing that's put in front of him. And that's a level of trust in himself that I think PTA has that makes or breaks movies like this. And it totally makes inherent vice for me.
0: Yeah, um, I think that's so eloquently put. And just talking about it, the elegance and simplicity of it is just just not a matter of trusting actors or their faces, but almost trusting the power of the medium itself. He's trusting the expressive qualities of cinema, the engine of empathy that is cinema. He's trusting the beauty of cinema. It reminds me of the elegant simplicity of Robert Bresson or something like that, where you do, you can do so, so little and evoke so, so much in that. And, um, not that I think PTA is deliberately evoking, uh, you know, a man escaped or diary of a diary of a country priest or something. He's not Paul Schrader, but I do <laughs> think that he, that, that level of simplicity of the power of cinema of how little you can, you really have to do to get a maximum effect is profound. And it's something that I think, uh, he mastered, um, if not here, and I think he got pretty close here, but I think he mastered it completely in Phantom Thread because Phantom Thread has all of these uh, uh, tonal swings where it is a, it's my favorite romantic comedy of its year. Uh, it, it's a Hitchcockian thriller. Um, it, it, it's kind of a suspense film. It's kind of a ghost story at the same time. Um, it's a great like man movie. It's about a man who loves food and his cars and all that kind of thing. Um, it's it's doing all these things that seem like they might cancel each other out. Not to mention the fact it's a movie about a dude making dresses. Uh, all of this should not work together. Let alone work with such a uh, simple, straightforward stylistic sensibility there. And I think that inherent vice is really the furthest he had pushed that simplicity up to that point. Even the master has some camera tricks, as you say. Um, uh, Particularly that shot of Freddy charging down uh, that field or farm after he poisoned the guy with his special uh, cocktail. Um, And uh, so he's clearly not gotten it completely out of the system yet. And uh, I mean, that's not to say there's not flashy shots in Inherent Vice or Phantom Thread. There are, although there's not as many of them, particularly, you know, there's that famous shot from the Master looking down on the ship that totally evokes Battleship Potemkin. He's not really going for comparing himself to, you know, Eisenstein, but uh, which he totally was doing in the Master. He's not too shameless, but he seems I feel like a humility came up in inherent vice and phantom thread in a weird way where he's just trying to boil his style down to the absolute bare necessities and almost let everything else do the talking for him for the characters. Hey, how do we shoot a car driving? Let's just stick the camera on it and drive. There's something so beautiful and uh, simple about that. And I, I love that. Oh, how do we follow a person walking into a room where the dress, let's just stick it on handheld and have the camera follow her. Why not? Um, it, it, he, and he doesn't seem to have that rigorous uh, storyboard every moment element that he seemed to have for so much of his cinema. Even though Will Be Blood feels meticulously planned out, like he's competing with Lean or something Is a great epic. Here he's just like, let's just let it be. And I love that element to it. And it's, it reminds me of classic cinema and how little it's trying to do in a weird way. And there's something weirdly pleasant just about occupying that space where he's not trying to win you over every second with something flashy.
3: Yeah, and I, I, I think you're again, again, Brandon. Host the show. I'm done. <laughs> Put a fork. In me. I'm done. You're so. I think you're so right. I, I, and I, I just think it's a. I think it's the confidence, and you call it humility. I think it's, it's it's that as well. But I think it's also it's simply the assuredness of someone who's been doing this for a while now, and. It's lived in and it's comfortable. He's got his style. He has the PTA. Used to be the PTA aesthetic would be you would you would name check other directors. You know, you would. okay. it's going to be an ensemble like Altman. It's going to be a little uh, it's going to be a little overlong like Altman. But it's also going to have the Scorsese and, uh, you know, that kind of coke fueled that great close up into Ray Liotta's eyes when he does coke at the beginning of the Monkey Man section of Goodfellas. It's going to have that kind of energy. And you you used to describe his style, you being all of us, as you would, it would be an, an accumulation of influences, but now it's just it's just PTA. And it's just this, as you said, it's this very it's almost he's doing like the Alexander the Great, cutting the knot in half instead of trying to figure out how to untie it, how to be clever and untie it. It's almost like he's going for the the simplest solutions possible. And I think that is something that it's not laziness. I think it's it again. It goes with that that almost Lynchian self confidence and trust in yourself. That why why overcomplicate this? Why do the big Scorsese tracking shot to and then he kissed me when I could just yeah I'll just mount I'll just follow I'll follow her handheld into the room. That just seems it's so much easier and it's simpler and it's tasteful and it's it's it, we don't spend half a day on one shot. I think that that has come with age and that has come with experience but to kind of swing back around to the beginning of the episode I do also feel like that's what makes his films weirdly just as you were saying the more you come to understand the universe the further away it seems the simpler he presents these stories these complex stories to us paradoxically the stranger and more complex and difficult they are to digest because I, I and I, what I mean by that is you look at something like Inherent Vice, we know this is going to be a complicated, naughty, K-N-O-T-T-Y, complex, difficult, strangely plotted detective film. Because that's what all detective films are. But because he presents it to us in such a laid back way, he doesn't present it to us like Night Moves or Chinatown. He just kind of hangs back and lets it unfurl. And I think that's very jarring to an audience. I think it's like, we're no, no, no. You're supposed to hold my face right to the screen and tell me that this is important and this guy is important and that this is my a plot and this is my b plot. And I think that there's almost a, a hey man, you just come pick and choose what you like. It's like a, it's a buffet. You 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 grab what you want and what you don't. Hey, I'm sorry. We were off that day. I just maybe I did something you didn't like. And I think that's one of the reasons why Inherent Vice can be so difficult for some is because of exactly because of that, because it is so simply done, because it, it's, it's formal complexity is nowhere near its emotional thematic or plot complexity. And I think that that disparity can be rather jarring.
0: Yeah, I think it can be jarring. And honestly, it was jarring for me, my first viewing Uh, I was kind of shocked and I was like, I actually left the movie. If I had a criticism of it, it was, I was like, wow, that it wasn't ugly at all. It was a beautiful looking movie, but it didn't have the shot to shot immaculate painterly compositions. I had studied so vigorously with there will be blood and the master. I mean, the master was one of my favorite first viewing experiences ever. I've seen it in 70 millimeter, the music box a bunch of times. Whenever they do their 70-millimeter film festival, I'll see 2001, I'll see Lawrence of Arabia, I'll see Vertigo, and I'll see The Master. Um, Every single time they play those movies. And I've studied The Master repeatedly just because it is so beautiful. So I was taken aback that Inherent Vice was so simple. But over time, uh, and repeat viewings, I've so come to appreciate its simplicity and you luxuriate in it in a weird way. But I I can't fault anybody for seeing the movie and seeing PTA get out of the story's way so much. And I think it's fascinating the movie he chose to kind of get out of his own way with and be confident in was also an adaptation. So I wonder if part of it was deference to the source, to the text, and Pynchon to get out of the way of the dialogue and just let it be the book. And he very much carried that into Phantom Thread, although Phantom Thread is a little showier, but not too, too much. But I will say one thing that I kind of disagree with that you said before, which is that uh, PTA has kind of just become PTA. I think that's true in general. But I will also say one of the things I find most endearing about him is almost his boyish way where on some level he's just making movies imitating his favorite filmmakers. You know, uh and, and he, I think, you know, Phantom Thread, he always talks about early lean, like passionate friends, yeah. which I actually don't love. I wish I did, but I love Brief Encounter um, and uh, lean's earlier stuff. But, he, you know, he's talking about Lean. he's talking about Hitchcock, Rebecca and all that. So on some level, he's like, oh, I want to make a Hitchcock. And there's something like boyishly film schooly about it. But instead of it being cringy. And like, oh, yeah, you're going to do, you know, a short just like Christopher Nolan. Oh, we have yet another short doing Kubrick. Okay, great. Um, I think there's something just lovely about the fact that he just loves this stuff so much and he wants to do his own take on it. And it's all pretty literal. Uh, Hard Eight or excuse me, Sydney is (laughs) really his Melville. Right. And and a lot of people don't talk about that. But that's uh, kind of a remake, kind of a literal remake of Bob the Flambor, Bob the Gambler uh uh Jean-Pierre Melville's film and then of course you go into the altman scorsese combination for a few movies um i honestly don't even know what i would compare punch drunk love to it's weird uh i, I honestly think that's like closest to a signature movie that no other filmmaker could have conceived of as it gets I, I don't know do you have anybody you would compare punch drunk love to oh god i
3: don't know maybe uh jacques de me perhaps like there's yeah, a little maybe. bit maybe
2: of- uh, uh, but
3: I, I, I but think not, that, I think you might be right. That I think you could argue that that Punch Drunk might be the the outlier in his universe. In in that it, it is the film that mo- it feels most holy itself. Yeah. And but it, I will say that you know when I was saying that I feel that his later films are less an accumulation of influences. I meant more to the effect of in those early films, it would be like a bright red neon sign that said, here's oh, my yeah, yeah. sensei. And then there would be like, here's my Nashville. Whereas right. sure. I mean, there's, there's references all over the place. And even in his later films, I, you know, in the uh, episode with Jim Hemphill, when we talk about doc and Penny sitting on that bench and just rat-a-tat, tatting dialogue, at each other, that's like a mini Howard Hawks film in, oh, in, in, a, in a single take. Uh, and it, you you see that throughout his films and as you said I mean there is so much early lean in uh phantom threat hell there is a shot when they're in the mountains that is almost oh yeah like,
0: it's like one to one
3: one to one a replication of a picnic scene in passionate friends
0: which i, I the I, New Year's I, Eve scene to oh, blah 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 it, it,
3: that that's such an ob- and I'm not, it's not a complaint but that is such an obvious crib from from uh, uh from lean and right. So yeah, it's not to say that he doesn't allow himself to be influenced or he doesn't like embrace the, the, the films that are just forever in his head. It's more that I, their, their influences become somewhat sublimated and a little bit more organically woven into right.
0: the yeah. film. I, no, I, I think that's right. Because sublimated it is, I mean, is a great movie.
3: As much as I love Boogie Nights, it's a palpable feeling of, okay, stop, here's my Scorsese. Okay, done with Scorsese, moving on. Whereas I feel like here, everything just as you said about when you're talking about the editing of it, it's just kind of a river of things flowing together. I mean, the influences and the original instincts, they're all just kind of flowing together in the same stream. And to come back to that, when you were talking about the editing and you were saying how it's almost like sorely speaking over montages of sequences and things like that this scene actually does begin very much like that where doc is sitting in his car with denis and he's talking to jade and then sorely starts to speak and then all of a sudden we're just fading into parker center and doc taking his pratfall and then going upstairs one of the only that i can think of actual hard cuts in the entire film is what ends this sequence with the hard cut off of Bigfoot to Doc laughing in his office. Mm, while, you're right right uh, right right before he and it it's a normal cut but because the rest, so much of the rest of this film as you said flows from sequence to sequence it has that feeling of you know when you're watching a movie uh, in uh, an actual film print and there will be a real change right on a cut and it makes the cut between scenes just a little bit more jarring because it doesn't happen in the middle of the scene or something like that it's just right on a cut so the, the cut between scenes is actually it's, just, it's a little bit longer and a little bit shakier that's what the cut at the end of this scene feels like simply because there aren't that many hard cuts anywhere else in this film everything else is those very slow Coppola-like transitions and fade-outs and fade-ins the way this scene ends is almost like a slap to the face. and I, I i i don't not like it, but i've always found it to be quite jarring that cut from bigfoot getting up from his desk to doc giggling in his office and getting high.
2: and yeah.
3: I, I i don't think it means anything. i, I almost I, I i it just almost feels like pta is like, well, we we we've, we've, we've faded in and out a lot. let's just get to the next thing. But uh, it, is, it is, it's it's a jarring, jarring way to end the sequence, that hard cut away from Bigfoot. And as we wind this episode up, I have to say something. We've been talking, we're going to just keep doing, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to structure this episode. The way I said the movie is like a bad joke where we keep going back. Oh, wait, wait, wait. And, and the lady owns an alligator and then that's why she's going to the bar. Earlier, we were talking about faces and performers and performances and the, the trust in them to the PTA's trust in his instincts in, in selecting these people. And I would be remiss if we were to have a Bigfoot Björnson episode and I did not pay brief homage to the majesty that is Josh Brolin in this role. I think it's really easy to miss amidst the moto panakeku and the eating of a plate of pot and the filating of bananas. What an incredible, subversively against type, because you think he's playing a typical brolin man's man, but he's instead playing this deeply, deeply broken, orally fixed, fixated, somewhat homoerotic, broken-down cop, and he does so with a level of nuance and subtlety that is so easy to miss, but is like the rest of the film, it's right there in this kind of this this vibrating undercurrent. And if you if you have your eyes peeled for it, it is absolutely amazing to watch. I I, I can I cannot praise his performance enough. And it's something that you only catch, I think, on rewatches, but when you're watching this scene and Doc is really pushing hard to get Bigfoot to investigate this whole coy matter. And he's like, well, why Why am I doing this? Uh, you know, what are we talking philosophy here? He's right. Res- he's dead. He's protected. <laughs> um, you know, this is this is for the, the for the Bunko squad. This is some sort of fraud. The second well, go back and watch the second that Doc mentions that this guy is associated with vigilant California and Bigfoot's a canny enough guy. I mean, bit of backstory. I'm sure if you've heard the this this the show before, then then you know this, and Blake loves it, loves it, loves it. But I keep repeating it, but you know the LAPD was in cahoots with the Golden Fang to kill Bigfoot Bjornson's partner Vincent and Delicato. so Bigfoot knows what the Golden Fang is, and he knows that Vigilant California is a part of that, is a sub wing of that, and watch Brolin's face. When Doc says he's a, this guy is a part of Vigilant California, and that Vigilant California might have had a hand in the Wolfman Snatch at Channel View Estates, there is a flicker of electricity across Brolin's face, and especially his eyes. And with, it's moments like that that, if you're really looking to see how the plot hangs together, as well as just seeing a beautiful performance, it's right there on Brolin's face in this scene.
0: Wow, well, uh, I cannot agree more i i think brolin is actually underrated as a performer oh yeah Uh, i think uh i i think a lot of that is because because of what you said he plays these roles that on the exterior appear um very uh like prototypically male um let's say very heteronormative where he kind of invokes that uh entire tradition and that entire uh persona to almost a satirical degree in some roles but i'm going to compare his performance here to a movie that one of my friends uh loves and wrote about Uh, i I forget who it was but uh, he wrote about this movie called the swimmer and he's the one who actually told me to watch it again it just slips my mind who it is no idea uh but it reminds me of burt lancaster Uh, In that performance where Burt Lancaster is playing a stereotypically uh, ultra macho male figure, but has all these undercurrents of sadness and melancholy that slowly permeate and come to the surface and come to the fore. Um, That reminds me so much of Josh Brolin in this film. Um, And they're both unbelievable performances.
2: That's,
3: that's an incredible comparison. And, Brennan, it was I who wrote about the swimmer and told you. It, it was you. <laughs> it was I. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, I think you're right. That, 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 <laughs> that, that's a very apt per, uh, comparison. Although, I always compare him to, uh, like, Thief-era Jimmy Kahn. Yeah, well, yeah. I feel like he's got where there's so much going on, but you just see the broad <laughs> shoulders and the machismo and, like, the swinging dick and the, the I am not someone you fuck with. Like that that, that James Caan thief thing where you're just like, oh, well, he's just being macho. He's just being cool. He's just being tough. But then when you actually stand back and you watch and you see that he's sketching not a, a, a celebration or or a dick swaggering uh, exemplar of masculinity, he's actually creating this, if not a critique, then a study of it and a breakdown of it and a, a running his fingers along the cracks and the fissures and the foundation of it. And I, it's something, again, that I don't think Brolin gets any credit for because we look at him and he just looks like he looks he looks like a 1950s cop. You know, he he looks like an extra you'd see on Adam 12. Yeah, you know, he's got that that dragnet granite Easter Island head that you just don't associate with amazing acting. Similar, as you said, to like Burt Lancaster, you look at someone like Burt Lancaster and you just you see the shoulders and the handsomeness and that stony face. And you're like, ah, oh, he's just a. You know, he's just kind of a, a good-looking hard-ass that's going to hard-ass his way through this movie. But no, instead, I I, I honestly believe that uh, there's not a bad performance in this film, and I think it's neck-and-neck neck with Waterston, though, and, and Brolin in terms of the MVP and giving the best, best performance. It's hard to find someone who's doing better work in this film than Brolin, and more subtle work. And I know it's funny to say subtle. With a guy who's blowing bananas. But much like the film. If you look beneath the wildness of that surface. If you look beneath the bananas. And you look beneath the motopanakeku. He is sketching this incredibly sad. Damaged human being. That is no longer home. At home. In his world. His, his wife hates him. Uh, which is another great scene. His wife hates him. The LAPD killed his partner, and he's not Johnny Popular with them. Uh, his best friend is his nemesis, and he's this, this this completely adrift human being that on his own way is kind of trying to prevent Doc from becoming him. And there is, as you said, there's a sweetness to that, a weird sweetness to that that I don't think gets enough credit. And you have to lay most of that credit. Sure, Pinchon created the character and PTA adapted it, but without that weird mixture of malice and fascism and heartbreak and big heartedness that Brolin gives this role. We wouldn't be talking about this movie six years later. and we w- People wouldn't be doing Moto Panakeku and talking about this character the way they do. If he didn't bring that level of complex humanity to it that he did.
0: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And I love also that. Uh, I love performances in general that find a wonderful balance between being big and going big with a capital B and going over the top, while they have undercurrents of going small. Exactly And I love that. That
3: is probably the best possible note to end on, because that is inherent vice. It being big while going small. That is this film to an absolute T. It's also why it's so hard to wrap your hands around the goddamn thing. But that is this film. Being big, but going small. Brandon, thank you so much for coming on today. For doing your damnedest to rob me of my show. To (laughs) steal it from me beneath my (laughs) nose. To stick it in the trunk of your car and drive off into the night like Bigfoot Bjornson. I do appreciate you coming on today and before you go, tell people where they can read more of your work
0: yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Metaplex Movies you can find my website, The Metaplex and that has a a, a page with all the freelance work I've been doing at Roger Ebert uh, Vague Visages and elsewhere and yeah, give me a follow and you might see some, I do a lot of capsule reviews and stuff like that
3: and I'm telling you people his stuff is brainbreakingly, frustratingly good find him
2: read <laughs> get him. out of here
3: it's really good see that's how you know i mean it i'm not doing it at the top of the show when i got to make you happy <laughs> and butter you up i'm doing it at the end because i mean it on that note thank you again for coming on thanks everyone for listening and please join me next time where myself and a very special guest are going to learn something
1: spanish as we drift into Inherent Vice's second hour, watching all of these complicated strands complicate further by nodding together, or revealing they were knotted together long before we picked them up, or nodding to things we still can't even see. Well, we're lucky we've got a guy like Doc traipsing through it. All the various plots that cats cradle around us like a web. Or maybe he's just too high to see and is plowing forward in a fog, getting more and more tangled like the rest of us. Maybe it really doesn't matter as long as he gets us through it. We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.